Hello, this is Matt Hale bringing you the Art Monthly talk show. And this time I'm talking to a writer um, about his feature. It's the December-January issue. That's 2021 slash 22, issue 452. And the writer I'm talking to is Bob Dickinson. Um, and it says at the end of his feature, he's a writer based in Manchester. But very interestingly, I know for a fact that Bob is not in Manchester at all now. We're doing this on Zoom. Bob, where are you? Hello, by the way. Hello. Hi, Matt. I'm in Bariloche, which is in Argentina, in Patagonia, right down in the south of Argentina, uh, near the border with Chile. And um, it's we've had a very, very dry few weeks of of no rain and lots of sunshine. And today, the minute I broke, I woke up, there was a huge flash of light and a thunder clap, and it's been raining ever since. So you may hear some uh, explosions in the background caused by thunder. It's hard to imagine. I mean, I, I, I know Zoom is a wonderful thing, and it is wonderful, and the fact that I'm talking to you at all seems really cool. Because you're, mm-hmm. you're thousands of miles away, aren't you? Yes, it's like... The other side of the world, literally, and, and it's the spring here, so it's the, the it's a nice time of year. Okay, so it's quite warm. Uh, and it, well, it was until today. <laughs> yes, it still is quite warm. Yeah, yeah. And compared to here, I imagine it is. I think we're on about six degrees. So, uh, but and what? And I have oh, to. Wow. Why are you there? Is it? I mean, personal reasons. I mean, art reasons. Both. My but I, my wife is Argentinian. She lives here. Okay. So I, we were we were separated by the pandemic for 20 months. Awful. Awful. And we, we've only recently been able to get back together again. Oh, well, I'm very pleased for you. And, and, and yeah, that's good. It, it, you're, it, for me, it's about midday. And for you, it's, I think, nine in the morning or something? Yeah, just gone nine in the morning. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just hope that, that listeners... You know, it's nice to know about who's talking and stuff. So, I, I, and and we've been on the program a few times together in the past. Yeah. To go to a studio and do it, and as you say, since some change, times have changed due to pandemic, and then also I think people just like Zoom more or not going to offices and things. So we're doing it slightly different to how we used to do it, aren't we? Um, yeah. Now. Um, Listeners, just to say quickly, if you want to um, read Bob's feature, which is what we're going to be talking about. Um, one of the great ways of doing it is to subscribe to the magazine. Um, and you can do this at Art Monthly's website on the buy page. So that's um, artmonthly.co.uk, buy page. And there's various options for subscribing. I think there's probably a Christmas offer for no good reason other than we do it once a year and choose to do it around this time. Um, and you can do it digitally and receive it online or look at it online and get a huge back catalogue to look at as well you can do it in print and it comes in the post to you or you can do both um now bob you might be calling you bob but you are you are known as bob dickinson aren't you not robert yes correct well so some people call me robert my brother calls me robert (laughs) is he older than you by any chance no he's younger than me (laughs) Cool. Anyway, now listen, in, in the magazine, um, as I say, uh, the December Jan double issue, 21-22, your piece is called Art and Dyschronia. Uh, and I, I, interestingly, I looked that word up and it's spelled D-Y-S-C-H-R-O-N-I-A, listeners. And yes. I find a lot of definitions of that word. I could find a novel by somebody. So yeah. would you 
very kind because you did use it and you also used another word called euchronia perhaps perhaps in the and, and you used them both in the first paragraph so perhaps you would sort of say what they mean before we even say why you used them well uh, I first encountered that word when I read um, a book by um, Russell Foster, who's a neuroscientist who um, is interested in your circadian rhythms, which are the sort of rhythms that not just humans, but all animals and creatures have to regulate their day and night. It's to do with day and night. It's to do with having rest and um his critique, basically, of modern society is that our circadian rhythms are being um, compromised by the lives that we lead and the way we try and defy time by, for instance, night working at night. Um, people who work night shifts have very disrupted circadian rhythms, and it's very bad for your health, literally bad for your health. So <clears throat> he's... He's critiquing, and he's he's a medical person, and he's 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 looking at uh, uh, the way we mess up our sense of time. And in the ancient Greek world, uh, living with a messed up sense of time is a dyschronia, and an uchronia is a is a is a society where you've got your balance of time uh, correct. So I was looking, I was thinking about that, and also. Um, Jonathan Crary's book, 24-7, which is a, a, a more of a polemic attack on modern society, globalised uh, society, where you're expected to work all the time and the idea of sleep, <laughs> having any sleep at all, is kind of offensive to the notion of a free market capitalist world. And so we're being, you know, you, uh, we... we, we uh, our, our attitudes, uh, our, well, our arrangement, our, the way we work, the way lots of people have to work is, uh, for instance, zero hours contracts where they don't have any control over when they're being employed and uh, how long it's going to take them to do the job that they do. It's all very short notice and there's no job security and it completely, again, screws up their, their, uh, their uh, understanding of time and their control of time and their health it suffers as a result and everybody's health suffers as a result i suppose in a way um people working at home can is, is part of this too because in a way although you might be at home and you therefore you might assume you have some sort of i don't know power over your environment in reality as well you're available almost yes because I, I mean, I know you can switch your computer off, but in reality, the option of contacting you and speaking to you for work reasons, as we have these, the internet and, and Zoom, yes. is, is also um, part of that kind of, although you, I'm just sort of trying to, and we're kind of in that situation now, aren't we? You're having to work because I've asked you <laughs> where you are, but you can't just say no. <laughs> I can't, it's not practical, because actually it is possible. So your yes. life is, ex is, is, is being disrupted, or your, your time is being disrupted in that way, isn't it? Well, yeah, we've got this amazing technological ability to, to communicate across the world through different time zones. Um, that 
obviously does have an impact on the way some people have to work. I don't think we're either of us is suffering particularly right now, but um, but uh, yeah. So so what I was thinking with this piece was that that the control of time is also being extended into our understanding of history, the past, and the whole notion of how time passes. And uh, so I, I became quite interested, or I started I started looking at artists who who are examining or unearthing um, history, examining history in a, in a sort of slightly different way. And I, uh, came, I, I became very interested in this art duo called Prince Golam, who are Germ German-based performance artists who deliberately work or do performances, stage performances in historic settings or prehistoric settings, archaeological settings, uh, or in um, situations where artworks are on display. And what they do comments on those artworks or responds to those artworks or those archaeological or historical, um, uh, those, 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 uh, the, the buildings, the, the, the collections that they're, that they're working within. Yeah, just to backtrack a tiny bit, only only because there's a slight jump in your, you know, talking about how time and how we and our natural rhythms and how we work with time uh, to then mention history. They they seem like different things because one's like lived time. Uh, I, I know, obviously, history's directly connected and I, and I and I know what you're but it's what is the connect how do you I'm just trying to get my head around this jump to history because I, I mean obviously you know referring to historical events in the past isn't the same as as having your time disrupted did you how did you make that connection that's what I'm just Clarify that as much as we can. I, I understand we will talk about all the artists that you're talking about and why get why we get there, but is that possible? Well, it, seems, it seems to me that there has been a sort of there is a, um, a, a temporal confusion. I think I've called it is due to the way that artists have been a part and parcel of the way we've understood time and the way that. And, they, you know, they've kept up with technological change um, and they've been a part of the technical, technological changes that have marked and controlled the way we understand time since the Industrial Revolution. So um, the Industrial Revolution was the first uh, big change to the way we understood time, certainly in Western Europe. It meant that time had to be controlled and regulated so that workforces could attend and work and go to f work in factories and then go home uh, on a sort of shift basis. And I think artists were, were made aware of around about this, uh, shortly after the Industrial Revolution, not, not long after the Industrial Revolution, photography was developed as a way of capturing time. And I think that um, now that we're in a situation where the climate emergency is happening. 
um, we have an awareness of the way time is far more deep and far more, uh, and the way that I think we've certainly got an awareness of the way human beings have had an impact on the way time is marked and the way time affects us, but also the way time affects the planet and the way time is being, uh, the, 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 the time that we've got left, <laughs> uh, the way that uh, the time that the planet has got left is being compromised by human interaction. Yeah, so, so, so our effect on, uh, or our, our showing up in geological situations where... Yes. So, so that so that that's the history creeping in, as it were, the kind of awareness yes, of not just it. now and the short term and the the little bit of future which capitalism might be planning for you to think about. People are thinking about the past and our effect. So that's the sort of history coming in. I, it was just the the link between history and time. Mm. Right? I know that sounds silly in a way, but obviously time is a is, a, is an experience almost, and history is a kind of well, it's a political thing. It's a reality. It's all kinds of things. History is is complicated, isn't it? As to what it is exactly and how it's used. Because you mentioned, yeah, but I think I think particularly. Sorry, go on. You mentioned the Anthropocene era, don't you? And geological deep time and yes, things yeah. that we've written about in our monthly before, like Rob Lafrenet's deep time feature and Sophie J. Williams' Underlands and yeah. your own um, piece. Art in the Anthropocene as well, didn't you wrote about Yes. Okay. Yes, yes. Do, do carry on about the artist, because you mentioned Bruce Nauman, for instance, he used video, didn't he, to sl- you say to slow down and open up time. Yeah, yes, yes. So artists are part of, have, have kind of been witnessing the way that time has been changed by human beings, and, and artists have benefited from it. And artists are part and parcel of the way we are affecting time. And so I was interested to see these this, this duo, Prince Golem, who, who are well. One of them's German Wolfgang Prince, and the other guy is Mi- Mi- Michael Golam. He's from Lebanon, and so they've been working in places like the. Uh, um, the ancient Agora of Athens, which is the ancient marketplace, public gathering place. It's got political significance that was, as well as religious significance, that was that, that was built thousands of years ago, originally founded thousands of years ago in ancient Athens. And they did a series of performances using, uh, well, uh, using references uh, that they studied um, of the ancient Agora of Athens, references in the form of paintings by Delacroix, who obviously painted some some pretty famous pieces commenting on the the Greek War of Independence against the Ottoman uh, Empire back in the mid nineteenth century, and then but the the Prince Golem then also referred to commentary about Delacroix by the French novelist Michel Boutour, and also photographs of ancient Greek monuments that were taken by 
a female photographer called Ellie Saraidari, also known as Nelly, who did a series of uh, photographs of ancient Greek monuments using posed female models in the 1930s during the Metaxas regime, which was an ultra-right-wing uh, dictatorship in Greece that tried to clean up and idealize Greek, the idea of Greece. And so those images of ancient Greek monuments are a kind of idealized version of the way that they should be portrayed and the sort of idea of the Greek female form, because a lot of these photographs had female models posed, um, was, was uh, supposed to represent this kind of idealized version of Greece. And, and, and I think, <laughs> sorry. And I was going to say, practically speaking, I mean, dealing with what you've just described is in, 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 in a performance and getting across that kind of complication of layered history. How do they present yes. that physically? I mean, what, what, because you know, I mean, did they, the photographs, how were they available to, 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 to the audience to, to see from the performance? Well, you, I think, well, I wasn't there. I'm looking at sort of videos and photographs. Yeah. And I went through a whole series of, of their work, recent works, that some of which um, also used paper masks. And I became very interested in the use that they were making of these masks, which are very simple um, and have got color pencil scribblings all over them, sort of patterns, abstract patterns that they'd made on the masks. <clears throat> and so I looked at some other performances that they'd done um, in Italy, including one at a place called Palazzo Altemps in Rome, which was called My Heart is a Poised Cithara. A cithara is an ancient form of lyre or guitar. And so you see them in this, um, very historical building. It's a 16th century building, I think, and it's full of ancient Roman and Greek statues, very big statues in the background. Larger than life. Uh, larger than life, literally, yes, larger than life, overpowering. And the two of them are uh, posing with each other, move, going through a series of very gentle moves. Uh, one of them's got a... a a stringed in instrument which may well be a cithara and they are playing it and but you can't tell who is who because they're both wearing these masks and I was very struck by the way that the setting is gargantuan you know it's very heroic and full of the mythology that you associate with the characters who are portrayed in these statues. And these two, <laughs> Prince Golam and their masks are absolutely non-heroic. You know, they're, they, are, uh, they are struggling almost to, to try and impersonate <laughs> the things that are going on around them or to try and mimic the things that are going on around them. 
and they were one of them is also holding a, a piece of um, a piece of materials textile of some sort as a sort of imitation of the kind of robes that a lot of these statues would have been posed as wearing you know um, depicted or or there's a great deal of effort in ancient times went into the 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 way that robes um, and clothing fell and was was uh, could be mimicked realistically and the so the two of them are, are sort of trying desperately to to try and be like these statues but they're they're just human so it's about it's about the difference between the reality and and the ideal yes of that historical exactly yes and the way, and the way that it that that gods and heroes were larger than life huge and um, it, it, and we are still being, uh, yeah, we're, we're still being asked to believe that that kind of um, br- rather brutal, overpowering presence is uh, an important and basic truth to the way we live. <laughs> and I think, but in that other work that was that was done at the um, Agora in Athens, all those references to Greece in the 19th century, the struggle against the Ottoman Empire, and Greece in the 1930s, um, shortly before the Second World War, when it was occupied by the Germans. Um, all this, these, are the, these historical references to, to, um, to heroism and to idealism, also play a part in what Prince Golem are commenting on, are, or are struggling with to to get to, to get to grips with in what they're working, in where they're working rather. So their work is a is a kind of discovery and learning process for them. It's not that they've got it all worked out. It's an it's exactly a development of their thinking and learning. Would you say? Yes. It's, Yes, I think it's like you're watching them bring a whole lot of research together and they're in a certain setting, historical setting, and they are performing the the coming together of all that research and all that understanding. And they're sort of struggling to make sense of it yes. and to to make sense of their own vulnerability and smallness as human beings, real human beings, against the backdrop of all this stuff that has been claimed to be true about the past. Yeah. I mean, and it's deep, in our, it's deep in our memories, you know, it's deep in our psychology because it's tied up with religion. You say in your piece, it's clear that some political leaders, for some political leaders, history is simple and sacred, particularly those embracing... Mm forms of nationalism for whom there is little distinction between history and myth so history and myth they're dealing with that aren't they in their performance the sort of myth of reality yes yeah so that's the that's kind very, of i think that's very true in britain at the moment <laughs> with our government <laughs> yeah, because I, just to go back slightly within your piece you do say um you know, there is a growing right-wing populist politics in the UK. 
and elsewhere, and specifically government-declared culture wars. What were you thinking of when you said government-declared culture wars? Was there something, I mean, I'm not, could you just give us an example, for instance, of what, what you mean by that? Um, well, it's everything, really, from the sort of way in which um, Boris Johnson uh, uses references to ancient Greece and Roman history himself, doesn't he? I mean, he's supposed to, to have a very deep knowledge of this subject, but I don't know how deep it actually is. But he obviously loves the idea of um, dropping references to this kind of thing in his speeches, but also to um, referring to himself or, or, or kind of um, wanting to impersonate in some way Winston Churchill, you know, who's a, who is a, a really mythological figure in our history, in our 20th century history. And obviously Boris wrote a biography of Winston Churchill that I haven't read, but um, so I can't comment on it, but he's obviously, he obviously thinks that there are some Churchillian things, Churchillian traits or forms of behavior that, that are worth impersonating, I think. And um, that's a uh, way, isn't it? Myth making, yeah, myth making, yes. To creating myths about our own history and about what's, I mean, the, oh God, the whole perpetuation of the Blitz myth from the Second World War, which isn't just down to this government, but it's something that we in Britain we just can't get rid of it, you know, we just can't get rid of referring to the Blitz spirit and. Um, yeah, I think that, I, I, and when it comes to a culture war, I mean, there's plenty of examples of the way the government is uh, targeting institutions like the BBC and targeting education and targeting the arts because they know that these, well, I can't, I'm not going to get the, into a discussion about the BBC, but certainly they think, I, I kind of suspect they think the arts and the art schools are kind of, Places that where dangerous thoughts of are uh, initiated. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's just good, good to eke out because it's, you know, it's a fairly bold statement. So some some examples of it, but I hear what you're saying clearly. Yeah. So after Prince Gollum, um, in your piece, um, you bring up some other people as well, don't you? Um, Chilean American experimental filmmaker. Uh, Niles Atala. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not saying finish talking about Prince Gollum, but it, is there, you make a kind of link because they both use masks, don't they? Yeah, this is a film called Ray, which came out in 2017, which is a, <clears throat> a bonkers film about <clears throat> a man, a French man called Aurélie Antoine de Tunans, who, who, uh, in 1860, uh, went to Chile and declared himself the king of the Mapuche, who are indigenous people who live in Patagonia, right here, actually, where I am, um, is a Mapuche area. And uh, de Tunens was over in on the Chilean side, and he managed to form some kind of association with the local uh, Mapuche leaders and he declared himself the king and he was arrested by the Chilean authorities 
put on trial and um, declared insane, and he was sent back to France. And but he kept coming back. He kept coming back right through to the 1870s, and he failed every time. And he was always sent back, and he died in France in poverty. <clears throat> but the film is an exploration of this. It's a not a realistic film. It's a very strange film in which the characters uh, play themselves <clears throat> by wearing masks that are made of papier-mâché so that they can assume uh, within the roles they're playing in, within the film, they then assume an extra role, an extra... They, they emphasise their role by wearing a mask. And um, so he... Uh, uh, Antoine de Tounon's, when he he wears he wears a mask that makes him look deeply serious. Um, other characters, it, it increases the sort of sense of their sense of importance or the claim that they're making to the world around them about their own significance, which is a general statement about power and and it's about power and, and abuse and, and about role playing. It's about role playing. Yes, yeah, and how it's used by by. I'm referring to politicians and people. Yes. 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 And uh, it's a very bizarre film. Uh, Atala deliberately buried parts of the footage in his garden to degrade the footage. So when you watch it, you you see some of the film just literally kind of seeming to melt in front of you. It's a kind of psychedelic uh, experience. (laughs) It's very dreamlike. And it's funny as well. And he uses um, archive footage that was maybe shot in Chile. I don't know. It can't really tell. But it's, it, it definitely messes around with your sense of, of time. Yeah, I was going to say, um, the time-twisting yes. creation. Yes. For yeah. that in mixing up, as you say, archival stuff and, yeah. and masks. and I mean, it, it sounds, I mean, in a way, conventional, it's quite theatrical. Theatre, you know, these are theater, theatrical methods, aren't they? The masks. Yes. Things, yes. But obviously, the, the film probably steps outside or beyond that. But, but using his, a historical event or events... Um, and revealing them in order presumably to try to comment on now I mean or, or maybe understand why now is as it is that kind of approach to making work and again and again a learning a learning activity or you know the process being as important as the finished thing would you say yeah, I mean, it certainly gives you the feeling that watching that film makes you aware of the fact that the original people who lived here in Patagonia, yeah. the, the Mapuche tribes people, are just as much a mystery now as they were then, as they were when Europeans first arrived in the in South America or, or in North America. Um, and uh, there is still... A huge uh, political problem with the Mapuche here in certainly in Argentina, in Argentinian Patagonia, because of land 
ownership issues. And uh, a lot of the land here is being bought up by big companies like Benison. And they're buying the areas that have rivers because they know that climate change is making uh, the rain. We've, it's raining now, but it hasn't. It, there's been much less rain in recent years here. So drinking water is going to be uh, important. And so these companies and owners are trying to get control of the drinking water so they can sell it to people in the future because of climate change. The problem is that there are Mapuche um, settlements and those, those settlements, those people, those Mapuche people claim to belong to that, that land and they are coming into, they're activists, they're political activists are coming in conflict with the authorities increasingly and there have been a number of very unpleasant incidents and people have got killed because of these conflicts. So the, real, the, the position of the Mapuche in relation to Argentinian Patagonian society is still very complicated and it's the same in Chile. But that makes the film <laughs> contemporary. Makes the film contemporary. Yes. Yes, it does. Yes. That, that, that explains. Because what I'm interested in, is obviously, as well, is, is is your general your what you're trying to do with the feature is is incentivize. I, I feel artists to deal with history and and think about history where where they are, maybe or or, or anywhere, but as a as not to not to forget it or to not use it or to I mean obviously in their own way and it could be personal history even which we which we get quite a lot of personal history or, or personal lives yeah. in art now but not usually much related to historical time it, quite often it's you know very much in the moment time. I, I, there have been things, obviously, dealing with like statues that have been pushed over, and that kind of history is being linked to art quite a lot, isn't it? But but you're keen that, to give these examples of uh, to encourage more people, I presume, to, to to deal with history in their in their work. Yeah, I, I became very interested when I was writing it in the whole idea of like layering and the way. Um, you, the past is exposed by taking layers of away, and but at the same time, certain artists use layering, which a, ma- a mask is a, is a kind of layer that you put on yeah. your face. <clears throat> and that I then became interested in the way um, artists can impose layers on things to to introduce meaning, and. I then, well, something else happened, which was I, I found out about Becker, which is this art movement, radical art movement from Wales. <clears throat> and there's a story around this because I was, um, I, I realized earlier on this year in the summer <clears throat> um, that uh, uh, this, an, an art performance that happened in 1977 at the Eisteddfod in Wrexham, which was a kind of intervention. It wasn't even supposed to happen. It was, it was an intervention that was 
rather unexpected for anybody who happened to be there at the time. But an artist called Paul Davis did this performance called WN. WN. Uh, in which he, WN, he, he stood up outside a, the performance art pavilion, uh, which that year had invited lots of very famous international artists, none of whom was Welsh. <laughs> and Davis stood up and held above his head a railway sleeper, which is a very heavy piece of wood, um, into which he carved the letters WN, which stands for Welsh not. And in the 19th century, the Welsh language was, was illegal unless you were speaking in chapel. And if you're a child and you went to school and you were overheard speaking Welsh, you had to wear a wooden board around your neck with the letters WN uh, written on it that stood for Welsh not. And so Davis, Davis's intervention launched um, a group of artists called Becker. They called themselves Becker. They, were, they named themselves after the Rebecca rioters of the 19th century who were Welsh uh, rural protesters who were protesting against pole, uh, against uh, the taxation of roads by the English. <clears throat> and they, they, um, they dressed up as women. They were men dressed up as women, and they usually attacked toll booths at night by burning them down. What, what did they attack again? Toll booths. Toll booths, yeah, yeah. 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 Collection, money collection points on the road. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, what I, what the, the thing was <clears throat> that I realised that Paul Davis was somebody I'd actually known. Ah. I, he, used to, he was a, one of my art teachers at art school when I was doing my foundation year <clears throat> in the early 1970s in Northwich, Cheshire. There's a, an art school I, I went to. Not, which actually isn't that far from Wrexham, really, is it? No, no, it's not that far. Um, and uh, I got talking to some artists, I, or an artist I knew in North Wales, um, to try and find out if this was the same Paul Davis, and it was the same Paul Davis. But um, I, I, and Paul Davis was a very big guy. He died young. He died in his forties of a heart attack. Um, and but. He'd never mentioned to any of us when we were there his, his art practice. Uh, and then after I left, I stayed friendly with one of the other lecturers at Northwich. <clears throat> and I was talking to him about, about Paul Davis, and he didn't know that Paul Davis had been involved in Becker either. Uh, Paul had obviously kept a lot of this stuff secret, although... He also taught at Bangor, North Wales, and apparently he did not keep his, act, his art practice secret from the students at Bangor. So uh, it was, there's this interesting <laughs> uh, sort of um, situation. I, I, I would, I'm trying to um, get in touch with Paul's brother, Peter Davis, who's um, still uh, alive. He was in the group as well, wasn't he? And is a, an artist based in the northeast of England. Yes. He was in the group as well. There's a, all the other members of Becker are still around, yes. 
And does Becca still do things as Becca? Uh, there are, well, yes, it's, influence is still there. I mean, I, it, I think uh, it, it went through a period of intense activity and it wasn't really found to be acceptable uh, for a long time. And I think retrospectively, it's being looked at as much more important. And last year, they had a, there was a, 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 an exhibition called Becca Rising at Storiel Gallery in Bangor which included the Welsh Knots, because the Welsh Knots, uh, the, the railway sleeper that Paul Davis um, used in the intervention, he later carved it into a giant love spoon. You know, like a Welsh love spoon has a, has a knotted pattern. The whole sleeper became that, did it? Yes. Yeah. And that is the Welsh Knot now. Yeah. And so that's, yes, it's interesting. it is interesting. <laughs> that means there's, there's actually history within that piece of work. Yes. So that's quite interesting. Indeed. That's quite interesting as well. But because um, you're, you know, mostly a work by an artist tends to be made, at a, you know, within a, say, a six-month period or something. Not always, but often, isn't it? And then they move on to something else. But the idea that you might carry a piece of work for 20 years or something is quite, that's, that's an interesting notion in itself as an approach to making work, isn't it? Yes, and I think he was, I think he was, uh, he was, he was making a pun on the word not, but um, yeah. uh, I think he's also, he's looking at the, comp the, the knotted pattern is a kind of complicated, uh, it's like a kind of, um, binding of uh, binding of the of identity to to uh, something complex. It's like an expression of the complexity of your own relationship with your with your material, but also your your the complexity of your life in relation to where you've grown up. Right, but he, it's Welsh history that he's referring to, isn't he? Yes. In, Welsh in, identity. Sense, but so the spoon is a Welsh symbol with its yes. and then and the English were telling the Welsh not to speak Welsh, by the way, wasn't it? It was it was an English yes. oppression, as it were. Yes. And I, I think a lot of these Welsh art these artists, the Becker artists, were aware of the fact that this kind of attitude by the English has continued ever since. You know, there's there's been I referred to a piece by Tim Davis, who's a is a younger artist who's influenced by Becker, a piece called Kapil Kellin, which is, which is um, uh, a commentary on uh, the village of Kapil Kellin, which was flooded in the 1960s to make a huge reservoir, Bala Reservoir, to supply water to Liverpool. By act of, um, by yeah, by act of parliament. <laughs> yeah. So Tim um, Davis found... English, though. Yeah, you, you know, London. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and yeah, uh, the, Welsh, the Welsh are still dealing with these issues. I mean, what you said, yes. you said Peter Davis's work, um, Ty Half, which means summer house, I think, which is basically yes. connected to this whole thing of when, at one point, I think in the 80s, holiday homes, probably owned by the English, were burnt yes. by yes. 
by the Welsh nationalists, weren't they? Um, as as a protest against, well, a continuing Welsh yes. idea, really. I think is that I think that's right. Yes, it is. I mean, since the pandemic, lots of English people have been buying houses in North Wales, and it stopped local people being able to get access to their own uh, to owning a home. Yeah, I saw a player on TV. That was living in a caravan because basically there's no he couldn't afford to buy anywhere where he's where he's from at all. Yes, no, yes, it is, yeah. it is a problem. You 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 also talk about um, a performance involving people who were um, I think it's called Minefield, and it was about ah. the and the Malvinas. Who, who is that by? It's by a, a woman called Lola Arias, who is Argentinian, and. Um, she were I, I saw this in Manchester um, a couple of years ago at home, the venue home. And um, she's very interesting because going back to this idea of layering, she uses projectors to project documents and personal uh, art, archives uh, onto screens, but also onto the bodies of actors, well, performers. They're not professional actors. Um, Minefield was performed by... Um, uh, people, ex-service personnel from the both sides who came into conflict in the Falklands Malvinas conflict. And just getting those um, people to get those two things together is quite. A, you mean presumably what British soldiers? Do you mean? Yes, there's a number. Yeah, there's a there's a several. I can't remember the numbers of actors or sorry performers in the piece, but there's um, roughly 50, I think there's five British, five Argentinian, maybe more than that. One of the British side is, an, is a Gurkha, um, in fact. And yeah, it's interesting that a lot of what they talk about is um, the trauma of war and how they've lived with the trauma ever since and how they've been, they've had to come to terms with that one of them actually, one of the British performers is, is a, works as a therapist. Uh, but the piece, the piece that I referred, the section of the performance that I refer to in the, the article is, is where one of the Argentinians was a sailor on the Belgrana. Mm. And nowadays, extraordinarily, he is um, the drummer in a Beatles tribute band based in Buenos Aires. And when they do the bit, where they perform the bit where the, the ship is torpedoed, he is playing the drums. He's playing a drum solo and it gets more and more and more intense as the ship goes down. And the other performers are pretending to be survivors swimming for their lives towards the drum kit because the drum kit becomes the kind of rescue dinghy and they're all trying to make their way to the rescue dinghy. It's incredibly powerful. But I think the sounds like the important thing is that it's it's history which has occurred and they were part of that of an event and then yes. they are now still dealing with that history. But now, so it's a kind of yes, the layering there is an, is a real experience, and then the experience of the people from that actual event still yes, and they're now in in the now time, as it were. So that's yes, they're re, they're, they're, they they they've. They've spent their, the whole of their lives ever since that event, those events, reliving those events, 
or trying to forget those events, but being unable to forget those events. And then this, this performance is a way of kind of reliving them and actually doing them again. <laughs> and it's a form of, I suppose it is a form of therapy. Um, the, the, and the, and the, uh, the, role, the role that's also played in this, in these performances, because, you know, the, uh, Lola Arias has done a number of different, different shows. There's a show she does about East Germany with East German women. There's another show she's done with the children in Argentina with the children of people who disappeared during the dictatorship on stage with the children of people who worked for the authorities or worked uh, in the police. And it's about childhood and how you come to terms with, with what your parents did or what you don't know about what, what your parents did or what you don't know about your parents because you never knew your parents, stuff like that. And it, they, they all use archives, all, they all use notes and diaries and so on, projected onto the bodies of the people who are performing as a way of kind of reminding the audience, but also reminding us that we live with lots of li little bits of documentary evidence that we have to sort of somehow bring together to come to terms with things. Yeah, it, it, I, I can see that the, the difficulty with this kind of work, and it doesn't mean it shouldn't be tried, I'm not saying that, is, is in a way that it, it is to get across the, the actual history that they're referring to, to an audience, takes quite a bit of skill, really, you know, in a way that is actually understandable. And Yeah. And I, 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 it strikes me that it's incredibly valuable to the performers and those deeply involved in the study of the history that they then refer to within the performance. But obviously, I can imagine that as, a, as, an, as an audience, it would be sometimes difficult to, to, to get to grips with simply from the performance. I mean, it, but if it, it probably hopefully pushes people to, to find out more. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think Lola Arias is a pretty good director, actually. I think she gets people to, yeah, to do something which, is, which does engage with audiences, yeah. Now and that, I was very impressed. When, when, I, when I saw Minefield, I was, it was really moving. And we, it, was, it was, and it did work. And there was a sort of question and answer session afterwards where some of the performers came up on stage with, with Lola Arias to answer questions from the audience. And it was really fantastic. You know, it was very, that was moving as well. Sure. And, and did it reflect that they uh, found, understood what they, were, what they were watching and also then assist in a, a further understanding, I imagine? But that's the kind of thing I meant in a way. Was that, that like a, a, a conversation afterwards? I can imagine being not necessary, but certainly in a, an understandable addition that you would... Maybe they just. I've I've made my small point there. But Su Suzanne Creeman is, I think, the last person you mentioned. Yes, and, that, and that's to do with uranium. Just we've got a little bit, a little bit of time left. Just tell us about that, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, I'm, I I was interested to see that she was working in an an area of East former East Germany, um, where uranium was first discovered in the 18th century. I didn't know anything about this. 
um, but it was used as a, a, a place to mine uranium to use in Soviet nuclear warheads during the uh, 1950s, 60s, 70s. <clears throat> and obviously that was pretty kind of dangerous work. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so, but the whole area has been kind of... Um, landscaped to make it look as if none of this ever happened. So Suzanne went back to uh, this area to, to uh, find um, objects that had survived, uh, which include things like miners' helmets and water bottles and things from the industry that had been there for so long. Uh, but also living creatures like frogs. And she took these photographs that are called autodiagraphs, autodiagraphs, yeah. which, are, which yeah. look like x-rays. Um, and they show the amount of radioactivity that these objects contain. And, um, of course, this radioactivity won't decay for... 100,000 years. <laughs> so again, it's like there's this thing from the, that happened in our history <clears throat> not that long ago, some of us, but um, it's post-Second post World War history. And the impact that it made is going to be with us for thousands and thousands of years. And so we, we have this impact on history. Yeah. And she's yeah. done other work with, with various types of plants um, uh, that, have, that are full of these heavy metals and chemicals. They look so beautiful, and in normal circumstances, they would be perfectly good plants to have around the house, but they're full of radioactivity. Um, and it's, it's this substance called pitch blend, pitch blender, which, uh, which, and that's what the project is called. Right, and and that that is a history, isn't it? Into the future, which is yes, yes. Because I think that's very interesting. That you know, the sort of imagination is involved in there, and it's a bit like looking at space or something. You know, you can't really take conceive of how far how big it is, and you can't really conceive of a hundred thousand future. But you do have to consider these things if you're acting. Now digging up, yes. Don't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, that, I thought that was yeah. I thought that was a good place to end the article because yeah, because we're talking about history. We're talking about the way history is being altered by politics. But but the other thing that politics tends not to do is to think about the way we're impacting on the future, and particularly when we're looking at a you know a lovely landscape that looks as if it's been like that forever. And yes. it's, it's a historic landscape, but it's not. It's not an accurate representation of that landscape, and that landscape is poisonous. Yes, it's sort of a lie, really. A yes, lie. yes. Yeah. A, a modern kind of landscape. This has been great talking to you. I really appreciate your going through the whole feature like we have. And, 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 and there's other things we've not talked about within it, so listeners, please do try to find a copy of Art Monthly, December, January, and you can do that by subscribing on the website, as I said earlier on. But um, from Papua New Guinea, no, from Argentina. Bob. Yes. 
Patagonia. Patagonia. Got that completely wrong. I knew I'd get something wrong. I didn't do too badly. 